0: Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program, where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Mark Gober. Mark is the author of the book, An End to Upside Down Thinking, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday Life. His worldview attempts to flip the prevailing view in science that consciousness comes from the brain. Mark has become convinced that biology does not produce consciousness, rather consciousness produces biology. Today he's going to share his theories on human consciousness and what it means for our lives. Mark, can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got interested in the topic of consciousness?
1: Sure. I'm I'm often asked this question because my my background is really in business. And so when I tell you my background, it's like, well, how did you get involved in consciousness? And how'd you end up writing a book on the topic? So I'm a partner at a firm called Sherpa Technology Group in Silicon Valley. We advise technology companies on their innovation and mergers and acquisitions. Prior to that, I worked in investment banking with UBS in New York during the financial crisis. I actually started in July of 2008. So right before everything really hit, I was there and I was there through 2010. And prior to that, I was at Princeton University where I was captain of the tennis team. So like on the surface, there's not really a connection to the topic of consciousness. And it was about two years ago that I first became interested in the topics that I'm now speaking and writing about. When I was listening to podcasts, really, I kind of, I've heard a few podcasts that piqued my interest into these topics, started to explore and look at the science behind what I was hearing. And what I found was a whole body of scientific research that really shifted how I thought about my own existence personally and I became so interested in it that I eventually decided to write a book in the summer of 2017 to summarize that research. So that's the very quick version of, of how I ended up here today.
0: I want to go deeper into some of this stuff, but I want to start with a few questions. So if somebody's listening to this, and can you explain to them the old paradigm that biology produces consciousness? Or can you expand on that?
1: Sure. And I think they're even, even deep, more deeply than that, Like, what is… What is this consciousness thing that we're even talking about? Uh, Like Right now, you and I are having a conversation. We both have this awareness. We'll call it like a subjective inner experience that we both have. But um, like, what is that? And and I would have said conventionally, um, like before I got into this research, that, well, isn't that experience that we're both having, that subjective inner experience, isn't that happening because of things that are happening in my brain? that there's a lot of complex chemical stuff happening with neurons in my head, and that produces the experience that I'm having right now. And that's certainly what I would have said, and that is what many scientists are saying. But what I didn't realize until I got into the research was that there is a big question about that, which is that we know that consciousness exists, and we know the brain has a relationship to consciousness, but we have no idea how the brain could actually produce it. And Science Magazine has actually called it the number two question that remains in all of science, which is how does this physical body, like I can touch my body, my leg, my arm, my head, that's physical. My consciousness, it's not physical. This is the big question. How does something non-physical, which we undoubtedly experience, how does that come from our physical body? And what I what I suggest in, in my research is that, well, The reason that we haven't figured out the answer to this very fundamental question about our own consciousness, it's so basic because we all have it and we don't know where it comes from. The reason that we haven't figured out how a brain is producing it is that the brain doesn't produce it in the first place. The brain is related to our conscious experience for sure, but it's more like an antenna receiver or like a filtering mechanism or a processor of a consciousness that is not produced by or localized to the body. So it's like we're picking up the signal. The way our brain is shaped and configured is, is going to influence how we experience things. Like if someone gets in a car accident, they might, they might have brain damage, and then maybe they can't remember things as well. That means that the kind of the machinery for processing consciousness has shifted, but the consciousness itself, like the signal, so to speak, is unaffected. And this is, a, I mean, like it's, it's a really radical shift, for at least versus how I used to think about things, and I think, as we'll discuss, has major implications for existence, how we treat each other, and how we think of ourselves as human beings.
0: This leads to a couple of questions. I want to take a step back. Um, when, when you define consciousness, how, how do you define consciousness?
1: When I say that I am speaking to you right now, I define consciousness as that I, that subjective inner experience that awareness that i identify myself as and it's not a physical thing
0: and when you say use the example of it's almost like there's an antenna and we're picking up consciousness where do you feel that comes from
1: so we start to get into the realm here of things that are really difficult for our human mind to to like really fully conceptualize because we like our eyes only show us a very limited view of the electromagnetic spectrum of light. There's all kinds of light that we don't see with our eyes. There's all kinds of acoustic waves that we don't hear. We are trying to look at this question from the perspective of a limited body and brain. So I just want to start with that. But what I'm arguing and a number of others have, have come to this from quantum physics and other areas, which is to say that Consciousness itself is the basis for the reality that we are in. So this whole physical world is like an experience and a manifestation within a consciousness that is the basis of everything.
0: What drew you to that conclusion?
1: Yeah, we kind of skipped to the end, and I certainly didn't I didn't start there. It was it was a series of phenomena that didn't line up with this perspective that the brain was somehow producing consciousness, even though we have no idea how it could do that. And instead, they line up very well with this idea that consciousness is is fundamental, that it's the basis of everything. So we can start with physics, and we can keep it simple, but it's important because physics is is how we define this reality that we're in, even if we're not thinking about it on a day-to-day basis. But like, so what? How, how does how does the physical world work? We know from Newtonian stuff that you drop an apple and it falls to the ground, and that's gravity. Um, that Newtonian perspective on how the world works on the bigger scales is a really good approximation for this reality that we're in. But it starts to break down at very, very small scales. And we call the small scales in physics, it's called like quantum. And the way things behave in that area Start to point in this direction that we've discussed without even discussing the phenomena Which I think is super important because if 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 like the quantum world is the fabric of everything that we're experiencing uh, We have to account for that even if our eyes don't necessarily show it to us because it's so small So one phenomenon I mean, are you talking
0: about particle entanglement?
1: Yes, so we'll go there That's I want to talk about two things one is entanglement and one is is the observer effect which gets to consciousness, but entanglement is the idea, very, very basically, that you have two physical particles. One's here, one's very far away. They're physically distant from each other. When you affect one, the other one has a correlated effect, and it happens instantaneously. Meaning that, like Albert Einstein called this spooky action at a distance, because he thought the speed of light was the fastest that anything could go, and yet we have two things that are far apart and there's an instantaneous reaction between the two things. He called it spooky action at a distance. He tried to disprove it because he didn't like it, and yet, in in trying to disprove it, he further proved that it is real and it is an accepted part of of the quantum world. So it is suggesting that there is something going on that is interconnected. And now, you know, related to to the work that that I've started to do is that it's I think that's related to the connections between this underlying consciousness, but now, more specifically to the point of consciousness in the quantum world, this is an effect that, is, again, it's totally mind-blowing. It doesn't really make sense to our, our human mind. But when we observe an experiment, it's called the double-slit laser experiment. When there's an observer that is observing the behavior of the particle, the particle behaves like something physical, like my table. It's made out of physical atoms. And... I, what I think is that when I'm looking that it, when I'm not looking, it's behaving exactly how it is when I, when I am looking, because it has an independent existence. What this study shows is that when people are not looking at the, at the experiment, the particle doesn't behave the same way. It behaves like a wave, meaning that it is maybe here, maybe there. So, and then when people look at the experiment, it behaves like a particle which is all to suggest that somehow the observer is playing a role in how physical reality is being is steered almost. So it's so this, this begs the question, what is what does it mean to observe? Is that mean does that mean that a conscious observer has to enter the picture? And does that mean that our consciousness is playing a role in steering the physical world? Is it possible that consciousness is is basic, more basic than than even the stuff that we see? This led and many other things in the in the quantum realm he led max planck who's one of the founders of quantum physics he said in 1931 i regard consciousness as fundamental and i regard matter as derivative from consciousness and that's exactly the idea that you and i have just started to discuss which is that we're not conscious because of the physical matter in our body but rather the consciousness itself is the basis of everything physical and like, you know, that really puts a different spin on, on our just everyday existence, I think.
0: So a couple of things come up. One, um, for someone who hasn't taken a physics class maybe ever or in a very long time, someone's listening to this, can you describe the difference between a particle and a wave?
1: Mm-hmm. So a particle is something physical, like, like your table is made of lots of particles. A wave is something that's not, it doesn't have a definite location. It's like... It's like maybe here, maybe there. It's not a, a solid thing. So what we have in that experiment that I'm describing is when somebody is simply looking or observing, the behavior of that physical thing that you thought was a particle, like just an everyday physical thing, is changing its behavior whether or not you're looking at it.
0: So are you implying that all things have consciousness or are you implying that humans have um like does a rock have consciousness does a duck have consciousness are humans uh, antennas just more developed like what, what are your thoughts on this
1: so the way i think about it just conceptually is that nothing has consciousness but rather consciousness is experiencing itself through different physical lenses so my experience of consciousness is one thing but it's consciousness experiencing the physical world through the body of mark and the same thing for Mike and the same thing for anything else. And whether, you know, the brain of, of a duck or of, of something else or anything else physical, like what that, what that experience of consciousness is like, I, I really can't know for sure. But what I, I would, I guess, hypothesize based on this overarching idea is that everything is an experience of consciousness. Does that make sense?
0: I think so. And so what you're saying is that consciousness is something that sort of exists in the universe and like humans, for example, are gonna be able to experience consciousness through their senses. And so it's the evolution or development of senses of our senses that are going to help us sort of tune into this and something else might have different senses, more senses or less senses. Am I in the right world?
1: Yes, totally, totally. So if we think of our bodies as being antennas, which is a very general analogy then each of us has sort of a different antenna we have a different biological machinery that we're all dealing with so we're going to have a different experience because our biology which is the processor of consciousness is is slightly different and maybe for an animal it's a different form or maybe something else physical it's a different type of experience because the antenna so to speak is different
0: How has this idea changed the way that you i mean obviously think about but approach the world
1: say very drastically because if we think about the conventional perspective on consciousness, which I never even thought to question, I didn't know that like science magazine said it's the number two question in all of science. I assumed that doesn't the brain produce consciousness? Aren't I conscious just because of stuff happening in my head? And if you take that a few layers back, what does that imply about whether my life has any meaning? Well, it says that because consciousness comes from my physical brain and my body, that when my body dies— my consciousness must also be gone. That means my memories, feelings, emotions, they're all wiped out once you're dead. So is it does life have meaning under that perspective? I would argue, and I would have argued this when i when I used to think this way, that there is no meaning at all, because things that might happen during one's life are you can call them good or bad, but ultimately, that's a rationalization. Because a person will eventually die, their biological machinery will die, and their consciousness will be gone. So it's like you can come up with meaning, but eventually it's going to be over. So I used to really struggle with meaning because I couldn't reason that there was any meaning at all. And that was a – I mean I would go about my day-to-day life, and probably no one would have known that I was thinking that way. But I, I took it very literally, this view that, that when you die, it's over. Now, if what we're talking about is, is true – and again, much of my book is the scientific evidence – that points in this direction, even beyond quantum physics, is the notion that when our body dies, the consciousness itself hasn't died because it was never produced by the body in the first place. So that has a big influence on how we think. How, at least for me, how I thought about like life and death. I think about death as, as being more like a transition of consciousness rather than the end. Um, well, and we could you know, go
0: ahead. Well, what would it mean if I mean? There's a, there's some some science or some Uh, people working on this idea that you take the, the brain and you upload it into some type of software or hardware and you live within a machine, right? So what would that, like if that were to come true where somebody basically could download or upload consciousness into another entity, like how would that connect to your theory?
1: Well, I think many of those theories are assuming that our consciousness is coming from a complex brain. And once we figure out how a complex brain is structured, then we can just replicate it and replicate the consciousness that is arising from the brain itself. And that view that the consciousness is coming from something material to me is not correct and that we will not never be able to do it because consciousness is not dependent on physical matter in the first place. So this gets to things like artificial intelligence, you know, like the show Westworld where you have complex machines that become so complex, at a certain point they develop memories and consciousness and decide they want to take over, and they develop feelings. There's an assumption there that once we develop a machine that has enough complexity, that consciousness will somehow just emerge out of it, even though we don't understand how. I think many of these theories of downloading consciousness are making very similar assumptions that consciousness is coming from a material brain so let's just replicate a material brain and we'll be able to keep the same consciousness i i question that perspective now based on the way i'm looking at it
0: but if if that were to be true then that would that would undermine the argument that you're that you're making like i'm saying this not in the sense of tearing the things apart but like i'm just trying to understand like what is sort of a limit where um where the theory of, Begins mm-hmm. to fall right. apart. Right,
1: the theory of like basically nihilism, like that there is no meaning at all. I well, mean,
0: not, I not necessarily no meaning at all. Just like uh, this idea that consciousness is sort of this thing in the universe that people can tap into, and if someone were able to, and I'm not, I, I have no clue what the potential is around this. I know that there are people working on the problem. um I have a, a buddy of mine who's doing a PhD at MIT, and he to have his uh, brain frozen if he passes away with the intent that hopefully someday people can upload his brain and his consciousness. So um, I, I know that there are people thinking about this problem. So that's not really about nihilism. It's just a...
1: Yeah, well, I'll give you an example that and we'll see how this fits into your question. And I, I have a chapter on near-death experiences. And these are instances that I would have thought a few years ago are just like, doesn't, doesn't your brain spit out a bunch of chemicals right before you die to make you feel better? Isn't that just an evolutionary hallucination that is created? What I found in the research is that it seems it seems that these things are not hallucinations. That's at least my assessment and looking at many of the researchers from the University of Virginia and other places where people who are in very extreme physiological trauma like cardiac arrest. I mean, so they're clinically dead. There's no blood flowing to their brain. And yet a percentage of people who have cardiac arrest and are resuscitated are reporting a very lucid experience where they're like hovering over their body. They're seeing things in the room that are later reported as being accurate, which is by definition not a hallucination. And then they have all kinds of experiences of unconditional love and and life review and things like that. But this is happening typically under extreme physiological distress. And so the argument that some are making is that, well, we have a non-functional body and we have a highly functional consciousness, that the consciousness is, is existing totally independently of, of a functional brain, which I think going back to the question of, well, can we just download consciousness from the brain or, or recreate it? I, uh, it's almost, I'm, I just wonder if it's even necessary if consciousness is not is not tied to the brain in the first place. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I just don't, I don't have an answer uh, for that question. So. Um... I think it sort of feels like that's something that there are a lot of people working on, whether it's the research you're describing, um, trying to figure out if they're... I mean, I really like the example you used uh, at the beginning where you're saying, look, like, like you're talking about limitations of the human body. And I, I was thinking about something I read in Science Magazine around uh, sight in that a certain percentage of the population has, like, An extra I don't remember what a cone in the eye or something I forget what it was I remember this article ten years ago so they can see something like ten times the amount of colors that the average human being can see and we all we know that some people are colorblind and and they see um, less colors than the average person can see but somebody who who sees the world with ten times the amount of colors I think that was the the number um, is going to experience the world and they're not gonna be able to describe what they're experiencing accurate to someone who just doesn't have the physical resources in order to to be able to see that see the world in that way and so i think this is really interesting what you're describing is a really interesting idea and it's interesting to hear uh, about some of the research around this especially some of the stuff you talked about with um sort of quantum mechanics and and but i'm also just sort of like trying to understand trying to think about what are where are the limitations of this theory and what what are some of the things that other people are working on something else that i thought about was like this idea that that software like starts to repair itself or starts to fix itself or uh, facebook was running i think it was facebook was running these bots um, for a while and they started they were somehow autonomous and they started um developing their own language and the researchers turned them off because they could no longer understand what they were trying to communicate and a lot of this stuff is like very very um much in its infancy stages like uh, the technology is a year two three five years old or cutting edge and like what is this going to look like 10 years from now or 50 years from now a 100 years from now or a thousand years from now assuming that we're still on on earth and and does consciousness evolve out of that or yeah is, is your theory right and and maybe these machines or the software never really develops its own awareness because you're correlating consciousness with awareness, am mm-hmm. I correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. So that, that, that subjective inner experience of having an identity, I would argue that even though those computers are becoming more and more complex and developing their own language, it's still just an algorithmic process. It's just a result of computational stuff, but it's not producing a new consciousness from the machine. And I'll give another example of a person named Frederico Fagin, who is one of the inventors of the microprocessor, and he is now talking about artificial intelligence and and saying something very similar to what I'm describing, where artificial intelligence might be dangerous in the sense that we could program a machine with algorithms to do things or maybe even learn things from a computational perspective to do things that are not beneficial to people around us or maybe even dangerous. But the notion that the machine itself, just because it becomes complex, will have consciousness is not correct because consciousness is not coming from anything physical. He also regards this this consciousness as being more basic than anything material.
0: How do you propose that humans are tapping into this consciousness? Like you use a physical example of an antenna. Like is there, like I've never heard of any type of research where someone's like, I found this uh, part of the body that is able to pick up this, f- this frequency. Uh, so how do you theorize this is working?
1: It's a really important question, and I don't know the answer to it. Like, We know there is some relationship between the brain and consciousness. Someone gets in a car accident, they have memory loss, right? There's some correlation there. How is it that the brain is acting as an antenna or a lens, or is it just the brain or is it other parts of the body? Part of the reason I felt so compelled to write the book is that these are hugely important questions that I think are just not being explored in this way because of the assumption that, oh, consciousness just comes from the brain, even though we haven't figured it out yet. If we flipped the perspective and viewed the brain to be more like an antenna, then maybe we'd start looking at how the how the brain is is like receiving it or however else it's processing it. We just really don't know the answer.
0: Super interesting. Mike, is a producer, helped me develop some of the questions, and one of the questions he wanted me to ask you about was, he called them wizard-like abilities, um, things like telepathy and precognition. Can you talk about your thoughts on these things? Yeah,
1: absolutely, and, and most of my book is is about phenomena like like telepathy and precognition. Um, mind-to-mind communication and knowing the future before it happens. These are things that are really counterintuitive if, if we think the brain produces consciousness and if we think consciousness is just stuck in our bodies. But if consciousness is like the basis of everything, then these types of phenomena are actually plausible. So if we think of reality as being like a stream of water, where water represents consciousness, and each of us is a whirlpool within that stream, like, we're localizations of consciousness. We're having our own individual experiences. But um, we're, all part, we're all part of the same stream. We're all made of water. So just conceptually, if you imagine for a second that I open up my whirlpool a little bit and allow water in from your whirlpool, that would be like some of your consciousness entering my mind. That would be like telepathy. So that this model of, of consciousness being primary would predict that psychic abilities are a real thing. So, like… What's some of the evidence for that now? And in the field of telepathy, there's a study that has been done over many decades with different researchers, and when you combine the results in something called a meta-analysis, basically you just combine everything together and look at the statistics, you end up with really, really strong results, which… Even the American Psychologist Journal, which is the official peer-reviewed journal of the American Psychological Association, within the last few months, they allowed a study that talked about these statistics for these types of psychic phenomena, which and the paper says that they are real statistically. And that's a, a very mainstream outlet to say that. So what's the what's the classic study for telepathy that goes to this? You have one person in a room. We'll call him Bob. You have another person in a room. We'll call her Jane. Bob is put into a very relaxed state where he's just like chilling out in a room by himself, listening to relaxing music. And you have Jane in another room who is shown either images of something or like video clips. She's looking at something that the experimenters tell her to look at. Bob doesn't know what she's looking at. The experimenters tell her to mentally try to send to Bob what she's seeing. So she's doing that for a while. And then Bob comes out of his relaxed state the experimenters show him four pictures and they say, Bob, which of the four was Jane mentally trying to send to you? Now, we would predict if there were no effect at all, and that's the, what the conventional view would say, is that Bob would guess correctly in the long run one out of four times, 25%, because it should be totally random. There should be no effect from Jane, from Jane's mental intention to send something that she's looking at. Like, that's totally ridiculous. What do the studies show, though, is that it's closer to 32% rather than 25% when you combine the results, which is suggesting when you look at the statistics that something beyond chance is happening, like some information is subtly getting through between everyday people who have no training in this sort of thing. And it it actually lines up with our everyday experience because if I were 100% telepathic, I would know everyone's thoughts all the time, and I know that's not the case. But sometimes, like I'll think of somebody, and then I get a text or a phone call or an email, There are things like that that sometimes we can just chalk up as being chance, but if we look at this 32% versus 25%, maybe some of those instances are actually a form of us knowing things almost psychically as a result of this, um, I'll call it like transference of consciousness.
0: I mean, it sounds like this is the type of thing you correlate or use like a parallel example with something like quantum entanglement.
1: Exactly, exactly. So some people have have tried to tie quantum entanglement to these types of phenomena to explain them. And Dr. Dean Radin, for example, who's the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, it's a research center that was started by uh, Edgar Mitchell, who's an Apollo 14 astronaut, who's very interested in these things. Dr. Radin has a book called Entangled Minds. And he's one of the researchers who've done many of these studies, which, to your point, suggests that maybe there is some interconnectedness of our minds and we see subtle effects sometimes.
0: Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way, you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchrisma.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible. Check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma Live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. One of the things that comes up for me as you say that is whether or not people who are able to display or appear to display an ability to do this more consistently, like for example, let's say somebody who has psychic abilities, or uh, or says they have psychic abilities, or has sort of claims to to be able to consistently show outcomes that are sort of consistent with that. I wonder if there's ever been a study around whether or not they're able to perform at a rate that's higher than the thirty two percent that you're referring to.
1: It's a really good question, and it. Uh- I think there are a number of issues. Number one, there's very little funding for these types of studies because it's so controversial. And in the mainstream circles, you can't even talk about these things if you want to get tenure. And that's what I've talked to the scientists about this. And I actually have my own podcast coming out where I've interviewed many of the scientists. And they all say the same thing. It's very difficult to get funding. And in mainstream circles, unless you want to leave the mainstream don't think, or or unless you get tenure, don't even think about talking about this. Uh, but you, your question is, I think, an important area of research. To what extent are people exceeding the 32% if they've been trained? And I think in some areas, we do see, uh, I'll call them heightened abilities. One area is with emotional closeness, where people are identical twins, for example, or mother-daughter, mother-child, or husband-wife. The effects seem to be stronger in the limited studies that we have where there is an emotional connection. And then also there are studies with, I'll call them like the Michael Jordans of these types of abilities with the U S government, where they've used psychic spies for national security purposes. And there was a program that was run during the cold war for over 20 years where these people who have a way above 32% type abilities are, were, were used to, um, to, to find things and identify things. Now, there are a number of pieces of evidence on this point and it's there's a phenomenon known as remote viewing, which is another form of of psychic ability. It's the ability to perceive something without actually being there physically. So it's like you can see it in your mind even though you've never seen the thing and it might be very far away. Now, it sounds like a crazy thing. Like how could you ever see something if you've never seen it before <laughs> with your eyes and you've never and it's far away from you. But again, if we think of the stream analogy where like everything is consciousness, it's just a matter of almost tuning into the right station to access another part of the stream. At least conceptually, this is possible. And when you look at the, the, the laser laser physicists at Stanford University who ran these studies for the U.S. government, they all talk about how this was really done. The remote viewers themselves, the people who were very talented psychically, they all have written about their abilities and what they were able to do. The CIA has actually released documents that were previously classified, and I was able to just go on the CIA's website and download them, and they're included in my book. They say very explicitly, a direct quote, remote viewing is a real phenomenon. Implications are revolutionary. And so there are a number of cases that, of specific examples where remote viewers were able to find things that were very far away that they couldn't have known about. Like For example, there was a downed Russian bomber in an African jungle and president former president u.s uh, u.s president jimmy carter he said that remote viewers were used to find this down bomber that no one else could find and so it was in an african jungle lost people who were not even in africa were able to somehow use their minds using these extraordinary abilities to locate where this thing was and he said gone on record publicly saying that they did that um so I, going back to your question I think there are maybe some people that are extraordinary. They're outliers. How they're doing it, what, how their brain's configured, I don't think we fully get it. And like, how could we use it as an everyday person? Can we develop these abilities to try to become like that? Because if we're all sort of antennas, then theoretically we all have the abilities. And in that one study I mentioned, we're all an average person is the 32% versus 25%. Are there ways we can go into states that allow us to exceed that?
0: a few things come up for me on the one hand. I'm like, this is fucking crazy. On the other, I'm like, well, the whole universe is, or or not, I don't know about the whole universe, but a lot of this, the universe is protons and electrons. Right. And like I get internet fucking wirelessly. Like my cell phone is able to transfer things wirelessly, like through like information wires, wirelessly through sort of the makeup of the universe, right? Like tapping into, to the different waves or whatever like why can't my brain do that and uh, or why is it like why is it impossible for my brain to do that as well right so these phenomena exist as part of physics or, or have been described by physics and humans have created uh, tools in order to to tap into this um so why can't my brain do it so it's sort of a weird and I, I don't really know the answer to it, and I, I've never really—I sort of looked into the data behind it. But those are sort of the two things that come up.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I, I so completely, I totally agree with you. But there, throughout history, we've we've had, we've gone through phases where we thought things were totally impossible, and then they were just shown to be real. Like germ theory is a really good one, where it used to be ridiculous to think that something microscopic that you can't even see could make you sick. How is that possible? And then with the advent of the microscope, we saw that these little things exist and we now know that it's common knowledge that you can get sick from bacteria or some a virus that you can't even see. And I think the cell phone example is a great one too. If you told someone 500 years ago that you could communicate wirelessly through electronic devices, there's no physical connection and you can have an almost instantaneous conversation with somebody, I mean, that would have been totally outlandish and insane. So I think we just have to remember that, that throughout history, We go through phases where we think something is outrageous, our technology and our knowledge improves, and then all of a sudden it's commonplace.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking about a conversation I had with one of my professors at Columbia, and we were talking about, it was before I read that article in Science Magazine, and I had proposed to him that, well, we were talking about sight, and he was saying like, uh, basically humans see the waves that get through the atmosphere like our eyes have evolved to see the waves that get through the atmosphere I don't know if that's that's correct or not but that was essentially from my memory of the conversation what he described and I said well I would assume that there's also potential that some people can see see things that other people couldn't and as you said at the beginning of the conversation there are like if you look at the, the spectrum of uh, light there's there are tons of things that we can't see and human beings have picked up to developed tools um in order to see some of the uh, find ways to, to view some of these waves that are outside of what we perceive as, as color. Right. And, um, and we use them to do things like detect, uh, the age of other stars through things like redshift. Right. So, um, I mean, these are sort of interesting ideas to me. Um, You talked about remote viewing. You talked about telepathy. You talked about precognition. What are some of the other things that you explored during your book?
1: So there's a phenomenon known as psychokinesis, which is the ability for the mind to have an effect on physical matter, which is outlandish relative to the conventional perspective because we're we're taught to think the brain produces consciousness. Consciousness just pops out of the brain and has no effect on the physical world. But if we flip it and consciousness is the basis of everything, then it would actually be logical to think that by shifting the consciousness that the material would actually shift also, like almost like the physical world is malleable. And there are some studies to suggest that this is true, at least at the small scales and possibly at bigger scales. At Princeton University, and I didn't even know about this when I was there because it was so controversial, but the former dean of engineering, Dr. Robert John, who was a rocket scientist, for 27 years, he had a lab called the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab, where he was looking at these phenomena. He looked at remote viewing. I talked about remote viewing before and showed that that was a real phenomenon based on the trials he ran. But he also looked at psychokinesis. And he did that with machines that are called random number generators. So these are machines that will spit out a zero or a one in a totally random fashion. So when you look at the string of zeros and ones that come out of the machine after a long trial of just the machine generating zeros and ones randomly, you end up with 50% ones, 50% zeros, roughly. Now, what, he, what Dr. John and others have done is to say, let's see if there's any mental influence that could change the behavior of the machines, which again, is a totally crazy idea by conventional standards. But what happens if we, can, if we ask the person to mentally try to make the machine, like mentally will it, to produce more ones and zeros? What happens? And what the researchers find when you look at many trials over you know, lots of machines, there's a very small but highly statistically significant effect where the machine is producing more ones than zeros. And the only logical thing that the researchers can come up with is that there is a mental influence that seems to be occurring.
0: Like how big is that number that you said is numerically? It's, it's, very, it's
1: very small. It's, it's like tiny and you need to use math to detect it. And again, this is why I think these phenomena are so difficult to wrap our heads around because they're occurring sometimes at subtle scales, just like the quantum world. Where we're not like seeing it outwardly every day, but if there are these subtle effects happening where we use our statistics and they show something's up beyond chance, how do we reconcile that? And I think the fact that we can't see them with our eyes so readily is, makes, makes it possible to continue to sweep them under the rug, which I think science, the conventional scientists have been doing probably for too long. Because I think we need to really look at these things, acknowledge maybe that they're real, study them further. So we can understand the nuances, like you just said, well, could, could someone do better than a few percentage points above chance here? Like, is there a person that can do 60% or 70% rather than 50-50? I don't think we know the answers very well. And it's because there has been, uh, it just hasn't been generally accepted to even look at these things.
0: Did you research anything else other than uh, the ones that you mentioned?
1: So there is – there's another study that I think is super interesting your listeners might like regarding these machines of random number generators where – in the examples I, I talked about before, these are where people are asked to mentally focus on the machines. There are other studies where the machines are set up all over the world. It's called the Global Consciousness Project, and it's a spin out of the Princeton Studies where the machines all day are just generating zeros and ones. So anyone can look at those patterns and see that it's like 50% ones, 50% zeros on a normal basis. What the experimenters have done is to look at how the machines behave when there's a major global event where many people's attention are focused on that event, like 9-11 or Princess Diana's death, something that is going to evoke emotion in many people on the planet. So they're not even focusing on the machines. Most people in the world don't even know these machines are running, or where they're running. And the experimenters look and say, wait, does something happen when there's a collective shift in consciousness on the planet? Do the machines behave differently? In other words, is the material world somehow being affected by collective intention? What they find, again, is that there is a small but highly statistically significant effect for certain events like 9-11. Where a lot of people are focused on things where it ends up being slightly more ones than zeros if we look at the statistics it's a it's a non chance effect
0: I mean, one of the things that um comes up as you say that is like isn't a little egocentric or arrogant to think that it's human consciousness that could be affecting these things if I assume that consciousness was actually having an effect i mean there's a a lot of species other than humans on the planet and um, I don't know, I just feel like there's something there.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think it, it rules out the fact that there could be other forms of consciousness that are uh, reacting, but it, it seems to be correlated with an event, with a major event beyond chance. And whatever the cause of that is, it's, it's, it's something that's not generally accepted, that an event and something around the event would cause the behavior of machines to change slightly.
0: One of the things that sort of comes up as you say that is like just sort of this idea of like the limitation of the of the mind like in the sense that we focus on one specific thing like we choose it's that event because that event is important to us or it's important to the researcher and uh, so we make the correlation that this change or this reality is correlated to this thing that is important to us because we're focused on that thing.
1: Right. Right. But I think the advantage of these studies is that because the machines are running all the time, the researchers are able to compare the strings of zeros and ones over many different time spans. And you can find a correlation to certain events, which I agree with you that there are just inherent limitations in all this of the way our human mind works. And there is probably a degree of egocentricity to look at things in a certain way because that's how we're, we're structured. But to me, the broader point is that something seems to be going on here that is totally not predicted by conventional science. That like needs to be explored and explained somehow because it could revolutionize how we think about so many things on the planet.
0: Let's say somebody takes on some of the ideas that um, you're describing and and they take on the sort of perspective of consciousness and try to apply it to their life. Like, sort of what are the implications of that, um, especially in terms of things like? I don't know, how we relate to each other or how we feel.
1: Well, I think some of these abilities, they they seem to exist in all of us to an extent, and maybe they're things that we could enhance to just enhance performance in everyday life. But to me, the bigger implications, um, in addition to changing science and technology and probably even medicine, um, is this notion of interconnectedness. To me, that's one of the big ones that's come up, where we're a part of the same consciousness, even though we have this individual experience. Like Erwin Schrödinger, the, the famous physicist, he said, in truth, there is only one mind. And that's kind of the picture that I'm describing as well. And similar to like what Max Planck said, I regard consciousness as fundamental. These are the, the prominent physicists who are pointing this direction. Now, what does that mean if we're all actually connected? How, how do we treat each other? Um, I'll, I'll point back to the near-death experience because this is something that I think about all the time. And it's, if it's true, it's a very important finding, which is that people, when they're under this extreme physiological trauma, you know, sometimes in cardiac arrest, people report having a life review where their whole life is experienced in a flash, and they're judging themselves for how they were interacting with people and how they treated people. Now, what happens in the cases that really blow my mind even more than that is sometimes during the life review, people experience the event that happened in their life through the eyes of the people that they affected so let's say bob was having his life review he's in cardiac arrest and he was really mean to jane at one point in his life in the life review he might experience that event through jane's eyes like it's consciousness switching lenses somehow and jane and he's feeling the pain that he inflicted on jane so these people that have near-death experiences typically come back into their body and their lives are forever changed They often change their jobs. They often get divorced because their priorities have shifted. But one of the common themes is people talk about how they don't fear death anymore because they've had this experience and they see sort of other dimensions of consciousness uh, beyond what we typically see with our eyes. And what they're shown is that what matters in life is about how we're treating one another because we're interconnected. So they typically change how they act and like when we turn on the news for 5 minutes on any given day i think many if not all of the problems we see are tied to an a an implicit belief in separation that you are separate from me even though that's just the way it looks and there's no connection to our to our minds or to our consciousness but if we're actually connected at the level of consciousness it it becomes irrational to do harm to other people so i, I think the implications here are just huge
0: one of the things that comes up as you you talk about this is i was thinking about automobiles and this idea that more and more we're going to begin to see cars that are autonomous and on some level the car is autonomous in the sense that it's like we're developing senses for it. Like it can see what's around it. Um, it can sense how far objects are from it. We're building these tools so that it doesn't bump into other cars or it doesn't bump into people and it stops at the appropriate time. Like, But it's it's aware of its environment. But there's also this idea that these cars are connected to some type of, um, through, wirelessly are connected to some type of software program that allows them also to know uh, what streets to go down or what um, like when they get to a certain place that there's going to be parking available or that there's they sort of tell these cars help them optimize how to interact with each other on a more macro level uh, or interact with their environment and the things that you describe i wonder can you take that model and apply it to humans where we're all sort of these like autonomous creatures that are trying to figure out how to get enough nutrients to survive and how to get enough, how to stay warm and regulate our body temperature and how to procreate. But also um, are we able to connect through the same type of physics to sort of something, something bigger? Um, Yeah. And I don't, I don't have an answer for it, but.
1: Well, I, I think it's, a, it's it's an important thought experiment because that's sort of where things are, with the, where this idea of consciousness points, where we're kind of like vehicles of consciousness, like biological suits almost for some broader consciousness. And we're all having our own individual experiences. And what that means, it's difficult to know. Like we have... We have hints from near death experiences and from some other things that it seems to be that we're trying to coexist together in this physical space and treat each other well because we're all part of the same thing. Um, so it's the implications are really important and I think they can be applied to many areas of technology.
0: Yeah. I, the other thing that comes up as you say that is just this idea that um, I think about like the Stone Age or I think about some sort of these different ages in human history we use different types of material and to create things and right now we're very much in a hardware hardware phase where we're taking these raw materials and we're building building hardware and then we're coding software to integrate with that hardware to do specific things and like when you look at things like dna it's it's quite clear that organic material can be coded right and so um it can be programmed to to behave in certain types of ways. And so um, I don't. we're getting towards the end of our time. Any last sort of thoughts, suggestions, things that you want to leave the listeners with?
1: Well, first of all, thank you for having and thanks for having such an intelligent and, and well-informed conversation. I would say that you know, the ideas, if you haven't heard these before, probably sound totally ridiculous and I think your reaction to remote viewing is, it's like that's the reaction that I had when I first got into the research. But for me it was, the fact that there is so much stuff from independent areas, when you put them all together, there's an analogy I really like of like when you, when you have lots of twigs in a bundle, it becomes more difficult to break the whole bundle, whereas any individual twig, maybe you can poke at a little bit. So what I've done in the book for people is to take the research that I've done, which took me – I basically just spent a year of, of nonstop research, and I wanted to simplify that for people, for those who are interested, to just see what's out there to see the landscape and for people who are interested in one specific topic, you can dive more deeply into it. But what I'm hoping to do is just expose people to what has been done and whether those those pieces of research are credible or not, that's up to one's own evaluation. But I think just knowing these things exist and knowing about the possibility um, is just can be really interesting and also can be life-changing for certain people that really get into it.
0: Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. This has been absolutely fascinating. And if you're listening to this and you want to learn more about Mark and the things that he's doing, we're going to post some links on the Craft Christmas website and within the description of this podcast so that you can learn about him and his work more easily. Thank you again. Thank you. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I gotta do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.